You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War Members Episode Number 2, An Asian Navy. While the Royal Navy had been the strongest navy in the world for generations, there were new challenges that it would have to face after the First World War. One of these was the growing strength of the Japanese Navy. The Japanese Navy would explode onto the world stage with the Battle of Tsushima, defeating the Russian Baltic Fleet and proving that they were a match for Western navies. In the post-war years, the Japanese Navy sought to ensure that their navy was a match for any other nation. The primary threat would quickly transition to the growing strength of the United States Navy, but of course the actions of the Royal Navy could not be ignored. In this episode, we will discuss the history of the Japanese Navy up to the First World War, and then discuss the Navy's plans for after the conflict was over up until the start of the Washington Naval Conference. The modern Japanese Navy traced its roots back to the 1860s. It was at that point that education and training of officers and men grew in importance as technology became increasingly important at sea. A naval academy was established in 1869 to further this process, and to ensure that the Japanese Navy could match any in the world in terms of training. From these early beginnings, some of the features of the later Japanese Navy were already present, including the extreme rivalry between the Navy and the Army, and also internal friction between the competing interests within the service itself. During this time, the relationship between the Navy and the government was already put in place, with the service being controlled mostly by the Naval General Staff instead of the Civilian Naval Ministry. This gave the Navy a good amount of autonomy, but also meant that the government would have many issues controlling the military, and later this arrangement would prove to be a big liability. One of the first major successes of the Japanese Navy would come during the First Sino-Japanese War in 1894. It would be during that conflict that the Navy would put in place the modern tactics and theories that they had been trying to learn and implement over the previous two decades. Many of these concepts were borrowed from Western navies, which went along with purchasing ships from abroad, but even at this point, the navy was morphing those foreign theories into something uniquely Japanese, a, a thread that would continue over the next several decades. In 1902, the Anglo-Japanese alliance would be signed, which did not commit either nation to entering a war with the other if they were only attacked by one other nation, but it did commit them to action if they were attacked by two other nations. This agreement was important to both Japan and the British Empire. For the British, it lessened their need for basing ships in the Pacific at a time when the threat from Germany and home waters was beginning to increase. For the Japanese, it gave them the national prestige of an alliance, and specifically a naval alliance with the British Empire. 
It also provided the Japanese with the security it needed to move forward with their plans for a future war with Russia, without having to worry about the Royal Navy becoming involved against them. During the Russo-Japanese War, the Japanese Navy would experience many successes, and those successes would cast their shadow over the actions of the Army and Navy into the Second World War. It was monumental for the Japanese armed forces to not just win a victory in a war, but a victory over a Western European power. The focal point, at least for the Navy, was the Battle of Tsushima, an absolutely crushing victory by the Japanese Navy over the Russian Baltic Fleet, which had sailed halfway around the world only to be destroyed. In naval terms, Tsushima was the Japanese Trafalgar, and the success would be studied by Japanese naval officers and naval officers from around the world as they looked to Tsushima to try and learn what it meant for the new era of naval combat. Of the many changes that would be written about extensively in the following years, one of the most important was that during the Russo-Japanese War, the navies had engaged in fire at ranges previously unheard of. This very long-range fire would continue during the First World War, and the ranges would only continue to grow during the interwar years. Beyond this tactical change, along with others, there were also philosophical changes that were seemingly proven at Tsushima that would alter naval thinking in Japan and elsewhere. In Kaigen, Strategy, Tactics, and Technology in the Imperial Japanese Navy 1887-1941, David C. Evans and Markle R. Petey explain some of these philosophical concepts. Quote, the impact of the Russo-Japanese War on naval thinking was less historical significance than the legacy it provided to the evolution of Japanese naval doctrine. Four key ideas helped shape this doctrine. The concept of the decisive fleet engagement determined by big guns, the validity of a strategy of attrition against a numerically superior enemy, the preference for quality over quantity in naval weaponry, and the importance of nighttime torpedo tactics. End quote. These impacts would be incredibly important to how the Japanese Navy looked at and made decisions about naval warfare in the following decades. It would be used as the basis for some decisions, and the justification for others. The idea that naval combat had been, and in the future always would be, determined by big ships with big guns was present in all of the major navies during this period, and Tsushima had been exactly what they believed a large fleet engagement would look like. The Japanese also believed that a key role in their victory had been the distances that the Russian forces had to travel before the fleets met, and the usage of naval attrition to make that journey as uncomfortable as possible. And this was a concept that the Japanese would put particular focus on during the interwar years. They would look at their two most likely enemies in a naval war, the United States and the British Empire, and they saw enemies that would have to cross thousands of miles of territory before they reached Japan. And this gave the Japanese plenty of time to prepare, and also opportunities to put in place attritional actions. The possibility of being numerically outnumbered, much like at the beginning of the Russo-Japanese War, pushed the Japanese Navy to continue to put emphasis on training and design, hoping to always have the best constructed and trained fleet in the world. These types of conclusions were not necessarily harmful in, in any real way, other than maybe the priority given to battleships, but that was a mistake that all the world's navies would make. But maybe the most detrimental lesson that the Japanese naval leaders would take from the battle was the concept that a massive, all-or-nothing, final climactic battle at sea was the most important feature of naval warfare. The idea that this type of battle was destined to happen, and that it would decide the war, was central to Japanese naval theory. This type of assumption and its belief that one massive defeat could end a war 
was a mistake that armies and navies would make in the years before the First World War. That war would prove that nations were far more resilient to failure, and this was a lesson that the Japanese did not fully take into account. There were also some circumstances around the Russo-Japanese War that make it a poor conflict to try and glean information from, at least in retrospect. The most glaring reason was that the Russian military and the Russian navy made some incredibly poor decisions. We're talking absolutely monumental mistakes. The consequences of some of these mistakes were not fully appreciated by the Japanese leaders, who attributed their victories to their good decisions instead of to the poor decisions of the Russians. This would lead to future war planning in which enemies were expected to make some of the same mistakes, the most important being an overextension into Japanese territory. This mindset would be applied to the next great naval enemy, the United States. The United States would become far more involved in Western Pacific uh, politics after they acquired the Philippines from Spain during the Spanish-American War. However, this event did not instantly turn the country into the focus of Japanese naval planning. It would not be until 1907 that the Japanese national defense policy, in the wake of the victories over Russia, would name the United States as a hypothetical enemy of the Navy. During this time, the planning for these operations were done on an annual basis, with the naval staff updating their plans against hypothetical enemies on a yearly basis. Many of the operations with which the Japanese would begin the Second World War were either initiated or continually refined during this period. This included the invasion of the Philippines, the occupation of Guam, the neutralization of Hong Kong, and the invasion of Malaya. These operations were planned and updated year after year for decades before the start of the war in 1941. A similar type of planning was occurring in the United States at this time, where War Plan Orange would be the primary outline for a war with Japan. Unfortunately, while we have very detailed information about the evolution of War Plan Orange, information we will work through in a future episode, a similar level of detail was not available for Japanese plans during this period. The basics of the plan are known to us, though. Even at this very early period, the basics of the plan for the next 30 years would already be present. The most important aspect of that plan was to use the geographical distance between the United States and the Philippines against the United States Navy, and wait for them to overextend into the Western Pacific before initiating a final massive fleet battle. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. One of the important Japanese naval theorists during this period was Sato Tetsuturo. Sato saw the United States as the primary enemy to future Japanese expansion, and because of this, he believed that the Navy was far more important than the Army to the future of Japan. In his appraisal of a future war, he believed that the Japanese faced some serious problems. Looking at the situation before the First World War, he believed that the United States would continue to increase the size of its battle fleet. Eventually, he would put the estimates at the United States having 60 capital ships during the 1920s. This was much higher than what they would be in reality, but such a massive enemy was part of his plans and was used to justify his suggestions. The pessimistic view that Sato had caused him to advocate for a very cautious approach to the United States, at least in the near term. The goal during this period was to maintain friendly relations with the United States while preparing for future Japanese naval expansion. Important to this expansion was his belief that Japan could challenge the United States in the future, even if he also recognized that the United States had much larger economic and industrial potential. He believed that the United States had two important weaknesses when it came to war with Japan. The first was that the United States would always be forced to divide its navy between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The second was simply the distance that the United States fleet would have to travel if it wanted to bring a war to Asia. It would first of all take time for the distance to be traversed, but it would also be a huge logistical challenge during the years of coal-burning naval ships. These problems for the Americans led Sato to try to set the assumptions of how strong the Japanese fleet needed to be in relation to the United States fleet if Japan wanted to win a war. He began with the assumption that the aggressor, which in this case would be the American fleet moving across the Pacific, would need to have an advantage over the Japanese of about 50% if they wanted to guarantee victory. If this was the case, and with the United States still having defensive commitments in the Atlantic, Sato believed that the Japanese strength of 70% of the American Navy was enough to guarantee Japanese victory. For those who have listened to the series of episodes on the naval arms race before the First World War, this is very similar to the logic that Tirpitz would use when deciding how strong the German fleet needed to be to threaten the Royal Navy. In both cases, in Japan and in Germany, they were depending on the global commitments of their enemies to sap their strength, and then also expected the enemy to come charging into their territory. Sato would also advocate for two concepts that would become critical to Japanese naval thinking. The first was a push to make sure that the Japanese ships were always qualitatively superior, and the idea that the Japanese could use attritional tactics against a westward-moving American fleet to whittle away at its assumed advantage. This attrition would become a key pillar of Japanese naval strategy during the interwar years, as aircraft technology improved. It would gain a boost after the First World War, when Japan was granted many islands in the Pacific, which had formerly been German colonies. These two changes were critical because they solved two major issues that the Japanese had when trying to force attrition on the American fleet. But for the First World War, the endurance of smaller ships at sea was very limited. Destroyers, submarines, and even small cruisers were limited in endurance, and it was a laborious and slow process to resupply coal at sea. 
However, the increase in range in aircraft and the increased adoption of oil-burning destroyers provided the Navy which, with a much greater range of action. The new bases in the Pacific just increased this range even further. The plan would evolve in such a way that these new islands were seen as a barrier against American aggression, key points of defense which would attack and hopefully reduce the numbers of any American fleet. So technology and new possessions solved some of the logistical problems with the Japanese plan to wait for the enemy to advance. Key to this strategy was an almost reckless drive by the United States Navy into the Western Pacific, but this type of advance had already been seen by the Japanese when the Russians had charged their fleet into Tsushima. However, this brings us to one of the core dissonances of the Japanese plan. The Japanese acknowledged that they were at a disadvantage when it came to a protracted war with the United States. The economic and industrial base of Japan just, just could not measure up, and there was no real disagreement about that. This pushed the Navy into believing that a single powerful battle at sea would end the war. Geography and the balance of forces during and immediately after the First World War meant that the Japanese would have to be on the defensive. This would give the initiative to the Americans, and there was no way for the Japanese to force action. The only way that they could possibly do this was through the invasion and capture of the Philippines. This was part of the Japanese plan, and for a long time the United States plan was to do exactly what the Japanese were hoping, execute a quick dash across the Pacific to try and rescue the colony. However, throughout the evolutions of War Plan Orange, this fleet movement lost favor due to the logistical problems that simply could not be solved. This caused the United States Navy to begin to move towards a more cautious approach, which was somewhat similar to what was actually going to happen after 1941. In this approach, the Japanese Navy would be at a serious disadvantage. Japanese planning was focused on a single decisive blow delivered while the Japanese fleet was mostly intact launched against a United States fleet reduced by time and distance. There was little provision for what to do if the enemy instead took a slow approach, using its much larger industrial capacity to build a fleet that simply could not be assailed. Some of these problems would only make themselves known in the future, and before any of those plans could be put in action, the Japanese Navy needed ships. To try and improve the ability of Japanese shipyards to build new warships, the Japanese government worked out a deal with Vickers in 1910. The plan was to build the battlecruiser, the Congo, in British shipyards with Japanese engineers highly involved in the planning and construction. Then all of the de design specifications would be provided to the Japanese, who would then build three more identical ships, only in Japan. This would make the Congo the last foreign-built Japanese capital ship, an important milestone for a navy that had been heavily dependent on foreign construction up to that point. The Congo-class ships were part of a naval construction program that included the Fuso-class uh, battleships, and all of these ships would mount 14-inch guns, at a time when 14-inch guns were the largest in the world, although they would soon be surpassed by the Queen Elizabeth's 15-inch uh, guns. A key point is that all of these ships were pre-Jutland in design and construction, and it would only be the Nagato-class, which would begin construction in August 1917, that some of the design considerations of the First World War naval actions would be taken into account. The armor and weight distribution was greatly altered in the Nagatos based on the news that reached Japan about the naval clashes in the North Sea. The Nagatos would also mount 16-inch guns, the largest in the world at the time. They would also be the first Japanese capital ships to burn oil instead of coal, but they would retain a mixed boiler setup, so they'd have 15 that were oil burning and 6 that could burn either fuel. 
This hybrid setup was a compromise between the proven technology of coal burning and the new and far more efficient oil. There was another class of even larger battleships initially designed in 1917, but these would be put on hold for three years to await developments at the end of the war. One of the reasons for the delay in the new ships was a re-evaluation of the global naval situation after 1917. Key to Japanese considerations was the continued expansion of the United States Navy. In 1916, it had ordered 10 capital ships, and then that number had been increased a few years later. Such a massive expansion put the United States on a path to having the most powerful battle fleet in the world. To try and meet this challenge, the Japanese Navy proposed an 888 fleet concept, an expansion from that pr their previous goals of just an 88 fleet. Now what that means is, a 888 fleet for the Japanese Navy would be three fleets all built around eight capital ships, a mix of battleships and battle cruisers. To reach this figure, three new capital ships would be started every single year, and then three would be completed each year as well, resulting in all 24 capital ships being completed in just eight years. This would have represented a massive expansion of the Japanese fleet, similar to what had happened in the United Kingdom before the First World War when they were having that naval arms race, with Germany, and this caused the finance ministry to make, a, make it clear that if naval budgets continued to balloon to the expected levels, it might cause serious damage to the Japanese economy. Like many post-war naval plans, this Triple Eight plan would be derailed by the announcement of the Washington Naval Conference. The designs for some of those ships that would have made up this larger fleet were completed before the conference. The defensive nature of Japanese plans caused them to make a few choices that were different when compared to their largest rivals. One example of how this altered ship design was the fact that the Japanese put larger engineering plants in their designs. This had the benefits of giving the ships greater speed, an important tactical advantage, but this additional cost came at the cost of total fuel storage and range. This trade-off was considered acceptable due to the defensive nature of Japanese naval plans. One change that would help would be a shift to oil, which provided a much greater range by volume. However, for Japan, the shift to oil-fired ships introduced a new set of problems that the nation found incredibly difficult to work around. For Japan, sourcing oil was very problematic. It had, essentially, no domestic supply, and so everything had to be imported. This caused the Navy to initiate a large stockpiling initiative, which was seen as a national defense priority. However, no matter how much oil was stored in the home islands, it could not solve the issue of complete dependence on imported oil. This issue was given greater priority because the fact that the largest source of imported oil at this time for Japan was the United States, which was now seen as the most likely enemy in a future conflict. The problems of Japanese access to oil would drive Japanese strategic decision-making throughout the interwar period, 